0: You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing the growing and prevalent movement of ex-evangelicals in the United States. Why are so many people leaving white evangelical Christianity? And what implications might that have on the broader culture? What insights do ex-evangelicals have about why so many evangelicals believe Donald Trump's lies? Why many resent journalists? And why many white evangelicals are prepared, if needed, for a battle over the nation? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. This is our first episode of 2024, and the first in a three-part series that will examine various aspects of conservative religion and politics as a lead-up to the 2024 U.S. presidential election. For this episode, I'm very excited to be chatting with Sarah McCammon. She is a national political correspondent for NPR and co-host of the NPR Politics Podcast. During the 2016 election cycle, Sarah was NPR's lead political reporter assigned to the Donald Trump campaign. And now she is the author of the forthcoming book, The Exvangelicals, Loving, Living, and Leaving the White Evangelical Church, coming out in March from St. Martin's Press, and which you can pre-order now. You can also read an excerpt from The Exvangelicals in the upcoming February issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Sarah. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good, Brett. It's good to talk with you.
0: Great. So I very much enjoyed reading your book. It's both deeply researched, and deeply personal. So before we move into talking about some of the broad trends among ex and current evangelicals, I'd like to give listeners a feel for what is at stake for you personally here and how much of an insider you are to this conversation. So could you give us a brief overview of your life within white evangelical Christianity, and then briefly what led you to become an ex-evangelical?
1: Sure. Well, I grew up in a white evangelical Midwestern family in Kansas City, Missouri, in the 80s and 90s. This was really the heart of the evangelical movement. I was born just a couple of weeks after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was the time of the moral majority. By the time I was a young teenager, uh, by some surveys' estimates, close to one in four Americans were white evangelicals. Hmm. So as a teen, I watched the evangelical movement grow in political power and influence. For example, I watched evangelical leaders, people we admired and who were household names in my home, Hmm. lead the charge against former President Bill Clinton in in the late 1990s over concerns, of course, about his moral character and and other things. But you know, Brett, we never called ourselves evangelicals. Hmm. We just called ourselves Christians because we believed that we were true Christians. That was a label we would not necessarily have Applied to everybody else that called themselves Christians. We, uh-huh. we thought that being a Christian meant believing in Jesus for salvation, reading the Bible plainly as as we said it. But you know, as I got older, I, I came to realize that we really had a lot of help interpreting the Bible and and forming those beliefs. And that came in the form of pastors and Christian school, and also in the form of not just local leaders but these increasingly powerful national figures like, James Dobson and Pat Robertson and many others, and it wasn't until I left the evangelical world that I really understood what a bubble I'd been raised in. You know, it just seemed normal to me, except for the things that didn't. And and that's really what the ex-evangelical part is about.
0: So then let's talk about the ex-evangelical part. So uh, ex-evangelicals, obviously meaning ex-evangelicals has picked up quite a bit of momentum in the past few years. You say in the book that it really grew in popularity, this term, around 2016. So then as someone who grew up with it and as someone who has been studying it and as a journalist, what do you make of this now movement of ex-evangelicals? What's contributing to it? And do you think it can have an impact on the culture of the United States beyond just that of evangelical community?
1: I really think that it can. And in many ways, it already is. You know, if you look at the decline in church attendance that's been seen in recent years, uh, and I'm not going to say it's all ex-evangelicals, It's it's that's happening across the board when it comes to particularly white Christianity. And, and there are several reasons for it. But my sense is that the image, particularly of the white evangelical church, has become so aligned in many people's minds with the political agenda that it's become untenable for a, a growing number of people. Mm-hmm. And. The other thing is that we live in an increasingly interconnected time where it's easier to find information. It's easier to find other people who are going through the specific Mm -hmm. thing you're going Mm -hmm. through, you know? And, you know, you can go online and search for any number of hashtags, whether it's ex evangelical or deconstruction, and find. Lots of people who are working through the same things. I mean, on TikTok, the ex-evangelical hashtag has more than a billion views already. Hmm. So it's it's possible to find community around these experiences. You know, when I was growing up, if people left the church, there was no word like exvangelical, there was no word like deconstruction, but there were words like backslider. You know, that was the word hmm. that the label that was applied to people who, who stopped going to church or stopped believing, people would talk about you. They might gossip about you, they might shun you, or they might just sometimes the most painful thing is try to intervene and reach out. And, you know, I remember in my early 20s when I was kind of slowly making my way out of evangelical spaces, being invited over. For lunch, I think by a, a woman in the church I was attending, and and I thought it was a gesture of friendship. It turned out to be what felt more like an intervention. You know, she she sat me down and just asked me how my how my walk with the Lord was going. And, and these kinds of stories are almost cliches in evangelical spaces. You know, being invited over for coffee and asked about your walk with the Lord. But again, you don't have to navigate those things alone anymore. The other thing that I think is driving this, Brett, is that. We do live in a much more pluralistic society. I mean, this country is increasingly diverse in every way you can think of. It is very hard to stay inside that evangelical bubble where there's a, such a prescribed and narrow way of living and being. And I think it's very easy for, for a lot of people encountering for the first time somebody who has a different faith or is gay or mm-hmm. just sees the world differently can be a really important part of that deconstruction process because it forces you to contend with difference. And, and this is something I write about in the book. You know, the person for me who kind of, you know, not intentionally, but but forced that mm-hmm. that thought process was my own grandfather who came out as gay uh, after my grandmother passed away. And so I grew up with this cognitive dissonance just kind of ever present in my childhood. This one view of the world that my parents deeply believed in and that I tried so hard to believe in. And then in juxtaposition to my grandfather, who was, you know, one of the most incredible and accomplished people I knew, but who we believed was going to burn in hell forever if he didn't get saved and follow Jesus and stop being gay. And so for me, that was sort of the central tension, but you know, it's different for everybody regardless of what it is that pushes a person to rethink the way that they were raised and what they've been taught there are now a lot more, it's much easier to to have those experiences that force that thinking, and it's much easier to find other people who are doing the same thing.
0: Right, that makes sense. So as I was reading your book, and look, I'm reading it as a queer Jewish academic. So, you know, no, <laughs> one, no one has ever invited me for coffee and said, What's it? I forget how you phrase it. What it's, you know, like to walk in your path of the Lord. I've never been asked any question like that. So I've not had that experience. And as editor of The Revealer, you know, we receive lots of pitches of article submissions from ex evangelicals with traumatic stories to share. So as I was reading your book, I frequently found myself thinking, that in many ways, white evangelical Christianity in the United States uh, can be quite dangerous, first to the children who grow up in it, and then second to the country, since so many don't seem content until this turns into a nation fashioned in their own interest. So I'm wondering if that is a fair assessment, and please feel free to tell me if that crosses a line or, or, or goes a bit too Broad. Um, But if part of it seems fair, or if part of that is something that you hear ex evangelicals talking about, what are some ways that ex evangelicals see white evangelical Christianity as maybe personally traumatizing and um, as a system that facilitates abuse? And then how do they or you see that abuse? or the power structures that enable it as then potentially spilling over into the entire country.
1: Well, if it's okay, before I get to what was dangerous for me as a child, you know, I want to start with the bigger picture because I think that it kind of explains it. With what white evangelicalism, or at least the political movement that's become aligned with it, has been trying to do for the past several decades now, uh, you know, through groups like the Moral Majority or today through the Trump movement, is preserve and or revert to a vision of society where white Christian men are in charge and that means in charge of the government in charge of churches and in charge of the family and you know I, I demonstrate this in the book and many scholars that I quote in the book have also demonstrated this you know if you look for example at some of the writings of evangelical leaders like James Dobson who wrote wistfully about a you know a bygone era where he's what he saw as the traditional family, predominated American culture. You know, I think this explains a lot of the resonance of the Trump movement for white evangelicals, the the sense of nostalgia, of make America great again. was very much in line with the messaging they'd been hearing from their leaders for a long time. In terms of what's personally traumatizing for myself and for other people I interviewed, you know there was a big emphasis on physical discipline which is of course something that study after study has found to be harmful and it wasn't unique to white evangelical culture but it was a real centerpiece of uh some of the parenting books that that mm-hmm. were in just about every evangelical household i knew of mm-hmm and it was not just physical discipline but it was sort of interwoven with a, a spiritualized view of how to discipline a child so it's not just you're getting spanked but you're getting spanked because god told me to and mm. you're a sinner you know mm-hmm. there was also a lot of spiritual and like existential fear just baked into the theology that i was raised with you know lying in bed praying that my grandpa would get saved so he wouldn't burn in hell is so scary and i mean i i remember tossing and turning as a child in bed just so afraid of god which is such a sad thing in retrospect. There were also gaps in my education, which is something that I know others who were raised in Christian school and homeschool education have also felt. I mean, I want to say, in some ways, it's a great education. You know, there's a real emphasis on reading and literacy. And I did great in a lot of ways. I had great test scores. And so I, it, it's not all bad. And a, a lot of homeschool kids, I was went to Christian school, a lot of homeschool kids have great test scores. But there are gaps, you know, it, teaching kids, that the the Earth is six to ten thousand years old and was literally created, like the Genesis account says, leaves some holes in your science education, in a world where scientific literacy is just essential for I think you know navigating professional spaces and and many other spaces. Um, and I think most of all, you know, any ideology that does not make room for the variety of human experience. And by that, I mean, women exist, gay people exist, people of color exist. Uh, people have developed an enormous range of religious and cultural beliefs. You know, any ideology that doesn't make room for that, in my opinion, is going to hurt people that don't fit into it, whether that's the intent or not. And I don't think it was. Yeah. And if I could say, you know, yeah, not everything was bad. I, like I said, yeah. I, you yeah. know, my teachers cared a lot about us. Many aspects of my education were wonderful and. My parents were very attentive. They really cared about being present for their children and they placed a lot of emphasis. There was like almost a holiness about the family. So that meant they prioritized being there for us and I'm grateful for those things. But that's, I mean, that's the task of sorting through this process that people now call deconstruction is sort of sorting through the good and the bad.
0: Yeah. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Okay. So then I'd like to then layer in your experience as a journalist with all of this, uh, especially since you covered uh, Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign for NPR. You describe in the book being at Trump rallies where people would scream at you and threaten you with violence because you, an NPR journalist, represented the quote-unquote fake news, elite establishment. But you also say that you recognized many of the people at those rallies, many times white evangelicals from the Midwest and the South. Those were people you grew up with and knew, so to speak. So not everyone at those rallies, of course, was evangelical. But what would you say fuels the hate that drives evangelicals in particular to scream at reporters and to get frenzied up about journalists by Trump or others?
1: Well, and it wasn't just me specifically. It was just sort of everybody in the press. Sure. Yes, and, yes, And what fuels it quite simply was, was Donald Trump's rhetoric. I mean, I used to describe those Trump rallies as being similar to a rock concert where you show up expecting to hear all the greatest hits and if you don't hear your favorite you go away unsatisfied and and one of those greatest hits was his attacks on the press and they they became in my assessment increasingly intense as the campaign went on but i think this is one of the things i struggle with the most you know i would have these sort of offside conversations with people and they'd be very friendly and You know, I am a blue eyed, blonde haired, white Midwestern woman. I can walk into these spaces and blend right in, which is not something that my colleagues of color were able to do nearly as easily. And we had conversations about this. But for me, I could walk into a Trump rally and nobody blinked an eye and I could converse really easily with people. I mean, I remember one guy at I think it was a rally in maybe Nevada in 2016, started going off in a, in a one-on-one conversation about the press. And he said, I don't know what it is they teach you in college these days. And I said, well, I went to a Christian college, so mm. actually they taught me a lot of Bible. And he kind of looked at me blankly like I wasn't expecting that, you know? Yes. So yeah. it was like a secret weapon that I had. But then, you know, the the tenor of the crowd would just turn so quickly when Trump started speaking. And and it was like he would just sort of whip them up into a, a lather of, of anger. And... For me, that was one of the hardest things to make sense of. It almost felt like these people are people I probably could have sat in church with at one time and they just saw me as an other because Trump had labeled me as such. And I realized this is like a feeling that people of color and other marginalized people experience all the time. But for me, it, it wasn't a normal thing. And it was kind of eye-opening. And what I attribute it to is again, it was it was the rhetoric coming from Donald Trump and in many ways it reminded me of, the kind of you know emotional response you see in church. I mean, I grew up watching people get caught up in waves mm-hmm. of charismatic fervor, mm-hmm. and I use that word, you yeah. know, both in the both in the sort of charismatic politician sense and charismatic religious leader sense. My my brand of evangelicalism really emphasized, you know, like speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts and miracles and talking directly to God, and it was very raw and emotional. And so I'd seen that before. I'd seen people get really excited and follow a leader, and I think. You know, there are a lot of parallels there. And in my mind, it comes from this very human desire, which is not unique to white evangelical Christians in any way, to, to be part of something bigger, to, to feel like you're part of a group and you know who your people are. And, you know, people are susceptible to being manipulated yeah. because of that.
0: That's a great connection to the next thing that I want to uh, talk to you about, because you bring up an event in the book that I think many of our listeners will remember well, and you have uh, particularly uh, interesting and insightful things to say about it. So in one chapter, you bring up when Kellyanne Conway told Meet the Press that Trump's White House had provided the media with, quote unquote, alternative facts about the inauguration crowd size, as if Alternative facts were something we should accept as something normal. And I remember hearing that and wanting to pull my hair out. And, and And you say that when you watched it, you actually had memories from your evangelical background come to mind. So what were some of those things that came to mind and how does that background or what takes place in evangelical spaces potentially prime people to accept alternative facts or things that others of us see us as obviously false.
1: It was just this insistence on a certain narrative, regardless of information that was like impervious to any information that might contradict it. And, you know, I think the first thing I thought about was creationism uh, and the creationism classes I sat through both in in church and in Christian school, which I I write about in the book. You know, there was an entire system of textbooks and seminars and children's books designed to reinforce this idea that the earth was, you know, six to 10,000 years old and literally created directly by God in the way that Genesis describes. And you know that was something that, as I got older, I really struggled with because I did become aware. You know, my parents took me to museums. They took me to the Smithsonian and uh, on a trip in, in eighth grade for uh, for the National Christian School Spelling Bee because that's how cool I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they took me to the Smithsonian and, and I'd been to, I think, museums with my grandpa and that sort of thing, and I'd seen. I had this awareness that other people believed that the earth was millions of years old and that we didn't, that we were sort of like this outlier. I didn't realize how much of an outlier we were, but you know that awareness that there were sort of facts out there and we had what you could call alternative facts. Yeah. It, it reminded me of that. There's also this whole sort of cottage industry of Christian nationalist textbooks and, and books that promote this idea of, you know, a Christian nation, that all the founding fathers were Christians, and that that the U.S. Is, was set apart by God and chosen and called in a way, sort of like a second Hebrew people or something, almost like a second, second Israel, you know, that the U.S. has this kind of special quality. These books promoted that idea. And, and that, of course, is at odds with historical fact. I mean, certainly some founding fathers were Christians, and many of them were religious in one way or another. But but we were just presented a view of it that, that was inaccurate and was also missing a whole lot of context about the ugly parts of our history. Mm,
0: That's very helpful. And then separately on another time, I do want to learn more about the Christian Spelling Bee competitions that uh, brought you to DC. (laughs) Uh, Ironically,
1: and I think you'll appreciate this. One of the words I was asked to spell was uh, kibbutznik, which I just think is hilarious that they asked a Christian girl to spell that at the Christian girl Spelling Bee. I'd never heard that word before, but... um, what I a think twist I've seen it yeah. on a spelling list, so I got it right.
0: very impressed. so um so you make the point throughout the book and you've been talking a bit about race and your own in these white evangelical spaces, that much of what um, you have been critiquing when you're talking about uh, evangelicals are white evangelicals. Uh, But in the book, you also talk about a variety of people of color who try to join predominantly white evangelical churches, but many of whom report then feeling like outsiders. How would you describe the place of race and racism within white evangelical communities that you've either studied or spent time in and how are you seeing them respond to things like black lives matter and white supremacy and these issues that matter greatly to so many Americans
1: I think it's really important to talk about white evangelicals specifically because if you if you take out the racial component it you know it really changes the conversation I mean uh, black evangelicals latino evangelicals vote very differently than their white counterparts and when I was growing up, and this is something I do write about in the book, there was an emphasis in a lot of churches, including my own, on trying to be more diverse, trying to be more inclusive, uh, building relationships with Black churches, for example. And you know, I, I want to say that those were sincere. They, they seemed to be sincere, but I think sometimes they lacked an awareness of why that division existed in the first place. I mean, one of the things I didn't realize at that time was that the Black church grew out of its own you know, painful history and Black churches were formed because white churches didn't include them and did not advocate for the liberation of their Black brothers and sisters. And so, you know, there's a a long history there that has led us to where we are today. And I I do think it's something that, that many white evangelicals, are, are motivated by their belief that you know God loves everybody, I and mean, this is something I was taught. I was taught that race doesn't matter, that that skin color isn't relevant, that you know God loves everyone, and everyone is made in God's image, and those are beautiful ideas. And I think a lot of people take them seriously. Now it's harder when you live in a community where everybody looks like you to really put that into practice. And so, what I heard from particularly the black evangelicals the theologically conservative Black Christians who had moved away from those white evangelical spaces is that that they had tried to exist in those spaces but had not been included, in part because I think that just the structure and the systems of some of those churches were not set up for that and had a hard time taking their voices seriously, particularly when they were pushing back against some of the ideology and the political ideology that had become pervasive. Um, It's one thing to, to put a black pastor on your staff it's another thing to really listen to him and accept his critique and accept you know his lived experience and i think that's where the rubber kind of meets the road with some of these churches
0: yeah yeah thank you okay so i want to quote something that you write in the book that i found particularly striking you write that, quote, to be an American evangelical is often to be at war, a Christian soldier moving ever onward into an invisible battle with the highest possible stakes, end quote. So what do you mean by that and what leads you to make that observation? And then what implications should all of us draw from this?
1: I mean, we literally sing songs about it in vacation Bible school when I was a kid, you know, and it was meant to be metaphorical. We talked a lot about uh, spiritual warfare, which was this idea that that Satan, the devil, was always at war for people's souls, always trying to basically lead everyone into hell, <laughs> and mm-hmm. that it was our job to try to prevent that. And and you did that by telling people the good news about Jesus and and, and asking them to accept him as their savior and get saved, as we put it. And that idea, that sort of spiritual theological idea, became conflated with the political agenda. I think we saw a lot of evangelicals, particularly um, in the years leading up to the creation of groups like the moral majority, saw what they considered to be the coarsening of the culture and, and the erosion of the, you know, the quote unquote traditional family and so you have this belief that you have the truth, and it's your job to lead everybody else to it. You look around, the culture's changing in a way that that you don't like. You know, It's easy to buy into the idea that you should enforce your worldview by any means necessary, or at least through the political process. Again, it was just a metaphor, but I worry increasingly after events like January 6th that it's becoming more literal. And, and, you know, there's some survey data from groups like the Public Religion Research Institute that show an increasing alignment between people who identify as white evangelicals, identify with sort of Christian nationalistic ideas, and who say that political violence is acceptable or maybe even necessary.
0: Well then, on that note, for our last question. So as someone who has spent significant time with the Trump campaign and among white evangelicals, what then are your biggest concerns for the 2024 election? And so we don't leave listeners only with fears or concerns. What are your suggestions then for how to address those concerns?
1: (laughs) You want me to give you a (laughs) hope.
0: Not just me. (laughs) Yeah, not
1: just you. You know, I I do worry about political violence. Uh, I think when you look at some of the survey data that shows an increasing openness to that, it's a worry. I think when you look at an event like January 6th, it's a worry. Having spent time on the campaign trail recently and talking to Republican voters in Iowa, for example, and also New Hampshire, but particularly some of the people I met in Iowa, I'm concerned about the not necessarily the integrity of our election system, but the belief in the integrity of our election system. I, I asked a lot of people if they would believe the election results, and generally, the answer I got was, "Well, it depends," and that's not encouraging. And, and I, you know, I've even when asked about the fact that multiple election officials, including Republican election officials at all levels of government, have affirmed the validity of the 2020 election, it, it didn't seem to phase a lot of the, particularly the Trump supporters I spoke to. So I don't know where that leads. Uh, I don't think it's anywhere good. And in terms of suggestions, <laughs> I mean, I think I'm going to disappoint you here, Brett, because I'm a <laughs> journalist and I don't make a lot of suggestions. I, You know, one thing in this book is I, I really don't, I didn't write it to tell people what to do or what to believe. I simply wrote it to try to bring some context and some insight into what I've seen and what I know, having experienced the white evangelical movement, including the political movement from the inside, and, and to help people understand a little bit more about what we're dealing with.
0: Yeah. And I think, and not that anyone needs to end on in hope, but I do think one of the things I took from your book is just how sizable this movement of ex-evangelicals is and how connected, as you described earlier, through TikTok and, and Instagram and other places they are. And there is... Um, There's also political movement there that is happening concurrently to some of what you just described about not believing in the election results. But it's helpful to me anyway to hear you describe voters who reject the reality of the 2020 election, Given maybe and if we're sticking to white evangelicals, a process and a lifetime of rejecting certain things that the rest of us would take as given. so it's 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 helpful, I will say, just knowing some of the reasons for the continued resistance to believing, Uh, evidence that's right in front of many of us. So thank you for that and for this conversation and for all of the important work that you do. Uh, This is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Sarah McCammon. You can find an excerpt from her book, The Exvangelicals, Loving, Living, and Leaving the White Evangelical Church in The Revealer's upcoming February issue at therevealer.org. And you can pre-order a copy of The Exvangelicals now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing the world of contemporary Christian music and the intermingling of conservative Christian pop culture and American politics as the second episode in our three-part series looking at conservative religion and politics in 2024. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.